back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. A warm welcome from me, Mark Woods, to the latest edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their consultancy services for a whole range of environmental issues at tecompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest this time out is a coaching expert whose journey has taken him from London to all four corners of the globe. An ex-Great Britain coach who's now sort of stranded in Japan, but has made Asia his second home of late Tony Gobelotto. Welcome to the MVP cast. Welcome, Mark. Uh, or, uh, good evening, good morning, um, whatever it is. But, you know, it's uh, really um, nice to hear from you and to uh, to finally make it onto MVP cast. Um, let's talk about your current situation. You were with the Abaraki Robots last season, so second division of the Japanese B-League. And although the season was cancelled, you're kind of stuck out there at the moment. Yeah, it's a real um, interesting one. I mean, uh, we, you know, obviously the, 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 it was a, a unique situation with the world. No one could have foresaw um, what was going to happen. Um, and, you know, I didn't, you know, I still, you know, have some issues and contractual situations that are up in the air. And, you know, the bottom line was, even if I wanted to, it'd be really hard for me to leave the country. I think there is a way of me getting back um, via Qatar, Qatar Airways, but my actual flight that's booked to, to go back to the UK doesn't exist at this moment. And uh, I'm pretty certain it's not going to exist for at least another three or four weeks. So, um, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a, a unique situation. We're in a um, uncharted territory, as uh, as any people that are involved in professional sport, especially throughout the world. Um, the only uh, saving grace for me is that you know, being in Japan, um, I have not had to um, endure the same type of uh, circumstances that yourself and um, all of the listeners in the UK have had to deal with, which is, you know, um, considerably tougher. You know, the lockdown here is not a lockdown. We've never had a lockdown. We had a state of emergency, which was uh, for a two or three week period, uh, especially only for my area. But um, I've, I've never not been able to do anything I've wanted to do, um, minus go to the health club uh, for two or three weeks. Everything else has been open. Um, all the shops uh, and life has just been like normal. So I've been very, very fortunate and very lucky, and I and I appreciate that as well. Because at, at this point in time, obviously, when we're all looking at the NBA and the Premier League, and we've seen the Bundesliga and football, you know, restart. You had that situation in, in with the B League that there was a restart, and everyone thought everything was okay. You could manage it, and then it all blew up again. Yeah, it was a, a really bizarre um, situation because, first of all, um, Japan was quite early to to act on something. What they did is they closed the schools um, in early February uh, for a month. Um, and whether that made any difference or not, I don't know. But they certainly, you know, the, 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 the rate of uh, infection and also death has been super low in comparison to any of the countries. 
So um, when we had just finished playing Shinshu, um, there was, I think the world was starting to get into a panic there and quite rightly so. I mean, you know, America was, you know, starting to say stuff and Europe, Italy was, you know, getting hit super hard. So um, they, you know, there were a lot of import players that were really, really scared, scared that they wouldn't be able to get home, didn't know everyone's um, education on the virus was very limited at that time. So we didn't really know what we were dealing with. None of us did. And so um, one of my imports actually flew home on the Thursday of that week. So our club, um, we there were various facilities that started closing, uh, especially the state-run facilities. Um, but we never had a problem of actually practicing. So we were we just went around about our our normal work um, for like a three-week period, and it was a little uneasy. There was certainly. Some players just accepted it as uh, everyday normal, worked hard, practiced really hard. Actually, we had some really good practices at that time. And then there were a couple of the older players that were probably talking to other players in uh, B1, B2. And they were saying to themselves, why are we doing this? Um, you know, the league should be cancelled. So when the league decided to play the, the resumed the, the league, um, and play the one set of games behind closed doors. Um, the the play there was definitely uh, a series of imports that were just not happy. They didn't want to play. Um, even my two imports that were left, um, they were questioning um, why are we doing this? What's what you know? W what happens if we contract the the virus? All of these type of questions. So many so many variables there. And you, this was filtering throughout the league. There were lots of, um, you know, because uh, Hokkaido, um, who play in B1, they were in the only area that, of Japan that had had this kind of the virus had hit. And I think they had had something like, I want to say just I'll give you a number of, say, like four or five hundred infections. So they had declared their own state of emergency which you know means completely different to everywhere else in the world, but basically means you should be you know trying to limit contact as much as possible. But their team had continued playing, and then so we get to the weekend at the games. Um, obviously for us it was very unique. You know you're going into the gym, there's no fans, um, but we went about our business as normal, like it was a normal weekend. Like I said, the imports were very nervous. Um, we played the weekend, we split the weekend one-on-one, -on -one. we should have won both of those games actually, we were up quite a lot in the first game. And um, then we start hearing these these rumours that uh, two things had happened. First, the team, I think the Hokkaido team had played somewhere in Tokyo and two of their players were um, feeling unwell and had fever. Then we heard that Nagoya um, had five players that was the Nagoya that were in our league. Uh, so it's two, two Nagoya teams. They, they, they had like four or five players ill that didn't travel to the away game. And then finally, uh, a referee had come down with a fever in between the Saturday and Sunday game. So he had to be replaced. Um, so there was a huge up, you know, kind of uproar on the Monday and the league um, just took the decision then to suspend the league um, indefinitely after that Monday and then look at what the other options were from there. 
I mean, all of which underlines the the extreme difficulty, even for the NBA's incredible plan. You play at Disney World, by the world of sports, you know, be in this bubble. It becomes very complicated because there are so many potential leaks in the system. But I mean, the other aspect that people have looked at is this phenomenon of playing games behind closed doors. I mean, you've had that very brief experience. I mean, you talk about the energy of the crowd. I mean, talk about the reaction of a little how does it change the feeling of coaching and I guess even talking to players playing a game when there's no one watching? Well, that's a, I mean, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting question to ask a coach. It will be very interesting to ask a player because I actually, from a coaching standpoint, um, it's, it's to be honest with you, it's like uh, coaching a uh, uh, preseason game, like a preseason <laughs> scrimmage. Um, you know, behind closed doors games or some games where there's not a big crowd and the crowd is not making a, a big noise. To be honest with you, it was, uh, it was um, as soon as the game started, I actually thought about that going in there. Hey, how's this going to feel and stuff? But once the ball was thrown up um, on the tip and um, we were playing, it was almost like for me personally, as a coach, it was almost like a regular game. Um, now, I honestly believe um, that had there been a crowd watching that first game, um, we would have blown them out um, because there were uh, there, there there was there, I'm pretty certain their crowd would have been really flat if we had taken a 17 19 point lead, which is what we did. But for some reason, our players um, remained semi flat where we, there wasn't a huge amount of energy. Um, as much as what there might have been if we'd been winning on the road and we'd been super focused. And we missed a couple of layups and that got them back into the game and we made a couple of stupid mistakes in the fourth quarter. But um, no, it was um, it was bizarre. It was weird. I mean, I'm going to take, I'm not going to, I'm definitely going to accept that. Um, and of course, there's less uh, crowd noise to affect your uh, play call in your timeouts, any of those other aspects that you would have, especially when you go to these really noisy places. But apart from that, um, you know, I, 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 I had no issues um, coaching in the game. Overall, first season in Japan, I mean, obviously the results were, were up and down at times, but as an experience for you, personally, professionally, how do you rate it? I mean, you know, taking first... Uh, uh, the, the the professional side has been fantastic. I mean, uh, the game here is, you know, incredibly professional, um, both in, in all of the three leagues. Um, you know, we're, the preparation that goes into all of the games, um, the travel, the amount of money they spent, you know, to, to run these teams is, is, is extensive. I mean, just to give you an example, um, there is no game that we will go and play away where we do not um, go the night before. So we go the night before, we either take a practice session at the, at the opponent's gym or uh, we may have practiced at our gym and then gone. And then the next morning we're in to shoot around and then into the game. Um, and the whole everything that surrounds the the, the, the organization and, uh, and 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 putting the team on the floor is super professional. The players um, extremely highly skilled, um, very tactical, tactically tactically minded. 
um, uh, you know, just very, very high-level basketball players. Um, and the imports here are, are all high-level imports as well. So the product itself has been great. It's, for me as a coach, just challenged me in so many ways. And um, so for me personally, um, I've loved every single minute. Um, even though we, we took some real um, hard hits, especially in that first phase of the season, and then we were able to get ourselves back on a winning run and stuff. Um, but, you know, it's been some real challenges, and, and I've had to challenge myself as a coach like never before, um, just simply because um, I wasn't ready for a, a number of aspects that go to, to to producing a winning team in this country. And then from a personal standpoint, um, this is a world-class country. Um, it's really hard not to like being here. Um, the only issue um, has always been, you know, a language barrier because it's a uh, um, there is a, a large part of the population that have no English speaking skills. Um, and so that is a challenge for me to learn some basic language and communication. But apart from that, um, it's been, you know, it's been extremely pleasurable, both, you know, on and off the court. Yeah, I do seem to recall never eating as many McDonald's per day as I did when I visited Japan about 10 years ago because they had a menu you could point to with pictures on it yeah. and that made it very, life very simple whereas everywhere else it was incredibly difficult and occasionally you would end up eating something that you really didn't want to eat because it looked no. and sounded probably as if you knew what you were talking about and you didn't but if, I'm in an incredibly fascinating country how do you find that with I mean you talked about adaptation you've always been a how do we put this quite noisy vocal type coach impassionate impassioned maybe maybe the word does that fit and translate into a country where there is a certain level of decorum expected well you know i'm i'm guess this is going to surprise about 99 percent of the people <laughs> that are listening to this but um i completely changed the way i coached and to be honest with you that really hurt the performance of the team in my view um, because I wasn't really myself. And so my challenge in these seasons to come is to find the balance. Um, but uh, I didn't do uh, any, any, almost anything against the referees. Um, I was not as vocal on the sidelines, not as demonstrative on the sidelines. Um, even in practice, um, I was, you know, quite restrained um, because, you know, I had been told, you know, by a number of people that, um, you know, not to be confrontational, um, to, you know, to have a lot of respect for the players and stuff. Um, that on the whole has, has served me well, but there have been definitely some times where, um, probably, you know, something of some, you know, some, you know, my own personality and how I've coached for a number, you know, for almost, you know, 20 plus years, would have, I believe, given me a little bit, a few better results um, and possibly put the team in a certain, in a little bit of a different direction. Um, but it is a great question and um, I definitely changed and no one would believe me, you know, if you saw the video of me on the sidelines, it was definitely a, um, something to behold, I think. Was it a career low in technicals? Well, I didn't have a technical. So, <laughs> In, in 47 games incredible seven games yeah plus all the preseason games i never got one technical so um so probably about 50 something games i never got a technical and call so. it your gary lineker year yeah gary lineker yeah so we've seen in the nba the, 
the, the pitching process that head coach candidates have to go through. And it's very detailed. It's like interviewing for a CEO role or pitching for a big contract. When you've gone in to, to roles, and particularly, say, with the robots last summer, what is that big plan, as you say, that you present that has that unique selling point that said, I can do this job better than anyone else possibly could? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, you know, from my perspective, uh, first of all, you know, the most important thing is, you know, your basketball philosophy. That's something that uh, club want to, to hear about, you know, how are you going to set the team up? Um, so for me, you know, in a short couple of sentences, it's uh, building from the defense up, um, stressing defense on a daily basis, um, offensively allowing um, freedom, creativity, um, not with one set pattern, normally utilizing uh, the, the strengths of the players that you have, um, trying to hide the weaknesses. And then playing an up-tempo um, transition game to to put a lot of pressure on the opposing team. Um, at the same time, um, you know what what I try to stress as well is uh, um, how I you know plan and organize um, how I can um, improve the staff, the local staff, how I integrate the local staff, um, and then. Um, one of my strengths is, you know, how I integrate basketball and business. And so I've always been, you know, I've always felt it's really important to sell our sport of basketball, um, both as a community aspect and also um, as a business aspect. So I've always showed that as part of my plan, um, how I integrate um, our basketball players, the utilization of our basketball players, how I can be utilized as a coach. Um, in a business environment, um, how we can learn to work together, um, working with the media department, the marketing department, and also you know business um, operations. So I think that those type of aspects are really important. Um, and then lastly, you know it's it's an interesting uh, time, you know year 2020. Um, there's so much um, hype um, online. You can sell yourself definitely. Um, you know, with all of the social media platforms now. Um, some people like that. Um, I try to um, be uh, kind of a middle of the road type guy um, where I try to be very professional in, in how I approach social media, um, trying to, uh, to promote my uh, team, my players, uh, the success of the organization. Um, but not trying to be, do that in a kind of arrogant way or a, a way of posting every single win and talking about how great we are. Um, so that's that's been my approach to 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 how I secure to 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 go into new situations and to try to secure uh, uh, jobs. But definitely that has changed. Once upon a time, it was just the resume. Um, and potentially some sort of interview. But now um, I even have a, a, very, a short coaching video edit of me coaching in games, in timeouts, in practices, um, because a lot of uh, organizations, they want to see uh, quite an extensive amount of information. Bet there's not a technical foul in any of those. No, there's definitely not a technical foul in any of those. <laughs> I mean, you talked about 
sort of selling the game and, and the sort of holistic approach of what it takes to be a head coach. And apart from possibly Billy Mims, who was a guest on this podcast not that long ago, no one did that better than Kevin Keidel. And you, he was someone with whom you worked, of course, as an assistant at London Towers, much missed, of course. But how much did you take the philosophy or how much did his philosophy ingrain itself when you were trying to to decide what kind of coach you wanted to be? Um, I mean, Kevin was a unique, um, I mean, unique person. And obviously, um, I didn't, didn't play for him. I was around him. Actually, you know, I did, I, I was just more of a, uh, a part of that program and, and next to, next to the, the guys that were the assistants at the time. Um, but what I learned from Kevin was, um, he always talked about being, you know, true to yourself. There were there were a lot of things that you didn't see with Kevin, you know. So he would um, he would give the books out on the bus. Um, he would really try to, uh, to 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 learn about his players, try to develop that relationship with the players, and more the off the court stuff, the the charisma. Um, actually, you know, Kevin was really really good at you know, separating basketball and that. And, and he was obviously, you know, very early to make the transition into media. But he was he was around and got a lot of advice from the marshals, um, from Barry and Jenny uh, and Doris, you know, who owned London Towers at the time and who were, you know, arguably the biggest pop promotion company in the world at that time. And um, they uh, they gave him a lot of very very um, good advice on you know on on how he should approach um, that off court stuff. So I guess um, I guess I took some of those things, but you know to be honest with you, I still take the most important things from Kevin were some life lessons and some of the, those key basketball philosophies that he that he lived by. Um, which I, I, I still carry carry today. Of those three earlier stints you had in the BBL was Newcastle, Birmingham, and then Everton Tigers. Obviously, there was trophies and there was different levels of success and journeys with each them. But which of those gave you the most satisfaction? Uh, I mean, of course, the Everton um, situation because you know I finally felt. Um, that I'd found, uh, a, you know, a place that I could really develop. I mean, that would have been the case in Newcastle had I stayed. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, Newcastle was, you know, became the greatest club ever. And, you know, the owner and Fab were just, you know, they took it to another level. But, um, you know, at that time, I, um, you know, Paul himself would tell you that, you know, it was still... It was, he was still building his business philosophy and how he could, you know, take the club forward. Um, and so um, the, the Everton situation was uh, obviously, you know, which became Mersey was 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 great for me because at that stage I was nearly, you know, I, I, was, I was like, you know, and I'd, I'd coached for, you know, 10 plus years at that time, maybe longer if you include all my junior stuff. And I had started to really understand my own strengths and weaknesses. And I also had started to develop a big basketball um, philosophy. And that philosophy had changed 
um, coming in contact with Chris Finch at the national team level um, and working with him because I really saw the things that he was doing and they they resonated really well with me. So I took those on and so I was really confident at that stage um, about how I could be successful in that league. And then being basically given the keys, you know, to recruit and to um, find players and to develop players. You know, I was really proud of how, you know, I took James Jones and um, uh, Andy Thompson and Olu and those type of guys who, you know, had just come back or, you know, come into the league and, you know, I'd given them real value. You know, of course, like I'm not taking any credit for Andrew Sullivan and Nate Rankin. Those type of guys were, you know, established type guys. But, you know, the, the other players, I really believe I developed well um and and help them become better players and so that was the 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 the, the feel the thing that i i most enjoyed from a bbl perspective and to be honest with you you know uh, it's interesting obviously the jordan documentary um i i'm still to this day mad that you know i couldn't bring the mersey tigers um team back um, you know, to 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 play that next season, you know, two eleven, two twelve, um, after winning those three trophies. So um, that was really something that you know kind of bugs me the way, obviously, that the the game is run. You know, here that you can be su- successful and then not have that opportunity, you know, to come back. And it was one of the most phenomenal teams that I've seen in the BBL in twenty five years of covering it. But obviously, it came at a pretty pricey budget at the time, and you know you looked at it even then and said, you know, is this sustainable? Because you know it was still that point where the league was struggling a little bit. You know that it was it was an anomaly at the time. Did you kind of sense in that second half of that season when you were on that sort of roll towards the championship that? Maybe things couldn't last, or was it a bolt out of the blue really when it fell apart? No, I mean the bottom line was that that team actually um, was wasn't an expensive team. There was, you know, actually the first the first Everton team, you know, the, the first year I coached, the year before I coached, and the year before, um, they were all way more expensive teams than than the than the Mersey Tigers team. Um, on on budget alone, and don't forget we never um, we never had any uh, import players. Although you know you could you could say Tafari was you know half American, half British, but um, you know we you know we we obviously went with the all British team. Uh, no, what simply you know in a in a very shortened version, um, you know just to remind everyone what happened. Um, I went there. We had the first year of success. Um, and then in the summer between year one and year two, um, Gary Townsend, who was the chief executive of the project at the time, he was the chief executive of Everton Community. Um, he left to go to Notts County to become chief executive of their football club. And from that moment on, that moment on, I knew we were in trouble because um, no one within the Everton Football Club were going to go to bat as hard as what Gary did. So halfway through that season was when uh, Everton decided that they would withdraw all of the funding at the end of the season. So we knew that when we got to the end of the season, the Everton brand would disappear. 
Gary came back um, in between, the, uh, he, he resigned from Notts County, that whole fe fell apart. He came back, um, and to be honest with you, pretty much everyone that went into that project, that's the first group, it, minus Nate, I would have said, all believed you know, what Gary tried to and wanted to do. He, he was desperate to, um, to fund the team to the level that he had been funded by Everton Football Club. Um, and to find the right sponsors and the right investors. And he was super close on a number of occasions, but it just became evident uh, um, throughout that year that just every time we would take two steps forward, we would take six back and we would be in real trouble. So uh, it, it, it's just one of those things. And I don't think that um, maybe in a different time, you know, with you know that there would you know some of these these things that have happened to the BBO in the last year or so, maybe with the with the with that kind of uh, with some visibility like a, the Turkish owner coming in or Vince with the American owner, but it's few and far between that you strike out at that level um, and you get lucky. So unfortunately, Gary was you know his vision and his passion were in the right place. That's why I never hold him accountable for what happened. Unfortunately, um, you know, how he executed it and the fact that it left um, people, you know, pretty upset and disappointed in the project, not not continuing and people owed money. That's, you know, something that, um, you know, is never ever gonna sit well with me. One of the tough things about the BBL is that you've we've seen franchises in London City Royals who, you you, know, you were involved in as a kind of consultant teams like that were the highlight the headline parts of it are very nice and they're very shiny and they're working very well but beneath the surface it's still building that root in a in a city in a community that that fan base that that will be there for years and years and years rather than the ones who come in and are attracted by a big arena or the bright lights yeah, I mean, um, I mean, we we probably can go on and have a two-hour podcast on just uh, on just the BBL and how it's set up and how it's run and the type of finances. Um, I would say that you know, ninety-five percent of the people that listen still have kind of not really an understanding of the the way that the BBL is financed and how it's financed. Um, and it's disappointing. I mean, it's disappointing that um, a coach like myself or uh, Tim Lewis, um, or to in in the in these last you know couple of years, Junior Williams, Lloyd Gardner, these type of coaches. And there are for those four that I've just named, there are you know at least twenty others um, have not been able to. Um, you know, gain employment or to be, you know, paid to do something um, that they've done very, very well. You know, I, I was someone that, you know, believed that Junior Williams had done an excellent job at London City Royals, regardless of the budget that was spent. You still have to go and win games. And, you know, I wasn't happy at how he lost his job. Um, at the same time, Lloyd Gardner went in there with, um, you know, with a, 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 a you know, a, a, a just an open mind, um, but with great coaching ability. And he was successful in the short period that he was there. And yet, you know, he's not going to, those guys are not going to be in professional basketball. And um, to me, that's a loss of our game. And again, it comes back to that point I just tried to make. 
It's not even the fact that they're not involved in as a head coach, which everyone wants to have that opportunity. It's the fact that they're not able to secure a job as an assistant coach like any other Spanish uh, coach would want to do if they were fired. They would be picked up as a as an assistant coach either on uh, you know on 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 that top league or a league lower because they've got a skill set which is which is has a value and um, that's our biggest problem at this moment um, you know we've talked about it for many many years the BBL you know does not value the coaching and infrastructure aspect um, or it's not so much it doesn't value it it just cannot support it um, from a financial aspect I mean, hand on heart, being around the Royals at, at the outset for, for the first few months and, and being involved in, in getting it off the ground, was there a part of you that looked back to what happened with Mersey Tigers and thought this could happen again? Um, actually, you know, what? I, I tell the story to, men, to many people. Um, the London City Royals, um, you know, who... It was obviously, uh, you know, it's something for other people to talk about, people like Junior Williams and Namo. Um, but when Namo explained the project to me, introduced me to the people that were making the investment, there was very little at that time um, to show me a Mersey Tigers type situation. Um, the Mersey Tigers situation, we always knew that Gary was, you know, really chasing hard for uh, for backing. And so he was just literally, you know, going from one kind of uh, deal to another versus, you know, London City Royals looked to me a very solid situation. And the types of money that they paid out to various people was, you know, was excessive. There's no doubt in my mind that that was the, a problem. But I, I don't hold anything against the people that were involved there. There were a lot of good people. And those people um, all had a genuine passion for that project. And I, I kind of, yes, the, the types of money that were being spent on some of the players was excessive. But at the same time, the money was supposedly there. So really disappointing. I mean, yes, there were some red flags towards the end of the season after I had left at Christmas. Um, there were some red flags that I had heard and we had saw some things um, that happened uh, with, uh, I think, what the uh, um, the games that got rained off and these other bits and pieces. There, there were some, <laughs> obviously, yeah, some problems that, were, uh, that, that, that came about, some issues with Crystal Palace and all these type of things. So there were some red flags. But at the same time, you know, I, I honestly thought that that project had, like, medium to long-term, you know, kind of legs. I didn't see it as the same as a, as a Mersey Tigers situation. The other dramatic twist that you've been involved in was the holy trinity of Glasgow Rocks, Scotland, Great Britain. You know, two, yes. two years ago now, and I, I remember getting that call from you to tell me what had happened, or certainly to tell me you were out of all three jobs on that morning and it's one of the, the most surprising calls I've ever had in terms of um, in doing this job and I know contractually you still can't speak fully about the situation but on a personal basis I, I remember 
you know, we spoke about you getting that Great Britain job and you saw it as the pinnacle and it was something that you wanted passionately, not just for yourself, but, you know, as a British coach to be in charge of a, of a national team. And then it's taken away after just a couple of games. And yeah, I always remember the excitement you had about taking charge for that, you know, those, those first few times. And it, it felt like a life ambition. How hmm. much personally and emotionally as was that, a wrench to you to have this job that you really desperately wanted and lots of people were really pleased for you to have and then for it to, to slip away? Well, I mean, um, probably, you know, I'm probably, uh, you, you can ask me this question in two, five, ten years' time. <laughs> you know, at the same time, I'm going to, you know, I know exactly the, the, the feelings and they, they, you know, they're not going to go away. You know, it's one of the most you know, crushing and hurtful and uh, experiences of my life, you know, from a definitely a professional basis. Um, you know, I had, um, you know, kind of, you know, there were definitely some opportunities for me to have coached um, in China and also the Middle East, which I turned down um, to come back and to be involved in, um, you know, specifically to, to, to coach the, the Great Britain team. You know, obviously, the Rocks was part of that situation. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed coaching the Rocks and I wanted to, uh, to be successful there. It's a, it's a very strong BBL franchise, one of the best um, BBL franchises. So, um, but, you know, talking about the GB situation, you know, it'll, it'll hurt forever, you know, because that was the, to me, it's the pinnacle of any coach, you know, to be able to coach a national team, but to be able to coach your own national team. Um, I honestly believe that um, I had the vision um, to not only make that team successful as senior team, but I had the vision and the understanding and more importantly, I had the ability to mobilize the, the, the underage teams underneath it. So there would have been a cohesive um, program, um, something that was working towards the same, you know, working from, you know, from the youngest ages all the way through to the men's team, you know, like there is in Finland and some of these other mm. smaller countries that have uh, 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 instigated a philosophy and also, you know, a kind of set of standards. And I really believed that I had the vision and the plan to do that. And when that's taken away from you, especially at such a, uh, an early uh, stage, you know, almost, you know, at the start, um, it was, you know, it was crushing. And to be honest with you, it really took, you know, like it took months to even begin to get, you know, uh, feel good about what had happened. Um, and to now, you know, of course, um, I've been very, very lucky. Um, you know, I was, you know, able to to do the, the, the couple of things um, in that season afterwards, you know, with London City Royals and then on with, uh, with Worcester. But, you know, being able, being able to come out, back out here to Asia um, to high level basketball, you know, as being able to kind of, um, you know, bridge that gap. But at the same time, um, you know, it's something that was taken away from me. And, um, you know, who's to know? Maybe there isn't time that, you know, I, 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 there is a route back towards that for me to take that program. But 
Um, if not, you know, it will be something that um, will be the biggest, you know, kind of regret of my life. What do you think, having had a little look behind the curtain within the GB programme, and obviously as someone who's been around it, been interested in it, advocated it for, for, for a long time, what is the the thing that's still, or the things that are still missing in that system? And you talked about underage as well, but if you... If you had that rule back and had it for a little bit longer, what are the things that even now that you would say this is this is something we need to switch? Well, we need to have a prolonged period of um, of funding, you know, um, and not and that's not just on court funding, i.e., with the direct money going to the to the senior or to the underage teams, but also into a, a federation structure that that can actually. Um, perform tasks, you know, much like there was leading up to the Olympics where we really, we kind of dropped the ball because our, our whole focus was on the Olympic Games team instead of really kind of concentrating half that resource and focus on that team and half on what was coming up behind and building a culture with those uh, players behind. I never forget this, that um, I was someone that was trying to talk to people like Warwick and, you know, the higher above people, um, Chris Spice, and say, look, guys, um, the younger players that are in the Futures program, we've got to make, we've got to have a uh, parallel program with the Olympic team. They've almost got to be practicing at the same time. They've got to be around those guys. Even if they don't make the squad, don't make the team, let's make them feel part of it. Because, you know, you did not need to be a rocket science to understand that as soon as the Olympic Games was finished, like six or eight of those players were never going to play on that team again. You know, that was it. They felt they'd done their bit um, and it was time to retire. So we needed to bring a whole new younger set of players in. But it's not about just bringing the players in and, um, you know, doing the basketball stuff. It's building a culture. It's building something that is proud to wear the GB vest to be involved in British basketball. What does it mean to be involved in British basketball? And you know what I what I what I never forget. Uh, I never forget a story um, that I was told by a Spanish journalist um, when I was uh, scouting just before the Olympic Games. I think I was in Italy somewhere. Was in maybe in Italy, maybe in France, and uh, Spain were playing in the tournament. And um, Pau Gasol was obviously playing for the Lakers at the time, and he wasn't there. And uh, I said to the Spanish journalist, I said, "You guys are going to get killed if you don't get uh, don't you don't get Pau." And I'm here, and he's not going to turn up. He's you know he's going to be really really tired. And he turned around and he said, "No what no no problem." And I said, well, "Why is it no problem?" And he said, "You know he's been rooming with Juan Carlos Navarro since he was 13 years old." They've been in, in the same, you know, twin room, you know, in every single age group leading up to the national team. He said he's not going to let players like that down. He will be there. And that's exactly what happened. Even when he's super tired, he turns up to play. And we didn't fully have that as a culture. Um, well, we don't have that as a culture. We, you know, everything is such so fragmented. Um, so, I mean, it's a roundabout way of, of, of discussing this thing. And again, when it comes to talking about British basketball, both 
you know, British basketball, GB team, uh, you know, uh, Basketball England or BBL. These are five-hour podcasts that we could do just on <laughs> the one subject alone that you and me personally could talk for five hours about and various other people could um, because there are, you know, so many things that could be done, could have been done or, you know, just haven't been done. And it's, you know, it's we're just so fragmented as a sport in so many, in so many areas. I think, I mean, the Spanish example is one I always quote. And, you know, you, you talk about that culture around the team. And I, you know, to his credit, when Joe Prunty came in, despite the fact he's got this big job in the NBA or jobs, to, to, to create a sort of family and a self-contained ownership of that team, etc. But everything that sat above that, or perhaps below it as well, wasn't really there in the same way that the Spanish Federation have. And you don't, you don't build that sense of community and shared ownership right from the age of 14 all the way to the senior team. And that's, for a coach, you're still, that's a deficit once you take those guys on. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Uh, I, and listen, um, I have a lot of respect for Joe. Um, there's a lot of people really, you know, liked how he ran the program. Obviously, I came just after he did. Um, uh, the one thing I'll say, though, is that, um, again, this, this comes back to the whole process of, like, um, how you uh, are building your coaches for the future, which I will say this. Uh, Warwick Khan and, you know, uh, Vladan uh, did a really good job of that. There, there's no doubt that people like Mark Stoodle in um, all of the junior underage coaches, Alan Keane, all of them, like, I'm missing loads of names. They're doing a good job and they build, they're going through the system. But, you know, for Joe not to and, and Warwick at that time not to have approached myself or Tim to be involved in the next incarnation of that team, in some sort of way, I thought was was disrespectful. I mean, Tim Lewis, um, and, you know, has a uh, a lot of um, you know a lot of people know what Tim's strengths are. There's some people that um, don't, but Tim has coached at some of the highest levels of this game. You know, he's coached. He's been an assistant coach in the in the G League. Um, he's coached national teams before. And you know he's not he's not talked about in in any way, and those those are the type of things that frustrate me uh, about where we where we go as a sport. Last thing, I mean, next season is it Japan again? Is it coming back? Where, where would you like whenever this next season, whichever country you happen to be in, begins? Would you would you consider coming back to the BBL at some point, or is, is Japan the top priority right now? Uh, J- Japan's a top priority for me at this moment. Um, there's no doubt about that. You know, I, I would like to have a uh, continuous um, period here um, in this country. I would never discount coming back and coaching in my own country. That's absolutely for sure, um, you know, at, at any stage. And to be honest with you, one thing I've never said probably, you know, in any kind of interview or publicly is that, um, I, I really, uh, the one thing that I was upset about most about the Mersey Tigers situation, the Everton Mersey Tigers situation, is I could have seen that as a Newcastle Leicester type situation where um, we were strong for a number of years as an organization and I was able to continue developing as a coach and getting better, um, producing better players, finding better players. 
Um, I, I admire and I also am jealous of, you know, Fab's uh, continuity, Rob's continuity, Atiba's continuity, um, Paul's, you know, when he was both at, you know, Guildford Worcester, now at Plymouth. Um, I, it, there's, a, there's a lot to be said about being able to coach year on year and improve. Understand you made mistakes. Um, understand that you've got to change and you've got to you've got to rectify those mistakes and you've got to get better. So I um, I, I I I would love to come back and um, put a series of three to five years with one club on you know and and show again what I could do. And that's what I that's what I believed when I started you know in Iceland and then I went to Newcastle. That's what I I knew I could do it. Um, stupidly, I left Paul and Newcastle and went to Birmingham um, and left the, the best owner in the, the BBL has ever known. Um, but, uh, but, but I rectified that when I went back to Everton. And I knew when I got to Everton, is if I could get two, three, four years, I was going to be successful. And that's, that's one of the things I've always felt. So, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, this, you know we, we know the BBL has strengths. We know it's been, you know, it's a competitive league, but it's, you know, still not a world-class league. Um, and, you know, I'm here in Japan where, you know, the average crowds even in the second league are 2,000 plus um, and in the first league are 4,000 plus. And, you know, they're the, 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 like I said, the money, the professionalism is extremely, extremely high. And um, short term, that's where I hope that I'm going to be. Saying all of that, you you know we're in a you know one of the most um, unique situations. Um, I'm praying that everyone stays safe and healthy. Um, at the same time, you know I hope that uh, when we can get past this, which I don't know still when we will, um, that there will be a professional basketball league in the UK. Um, that runs, you know, under the BBL, and that all of the teams can be in somewhat, you know, healthy and uh, 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 competitive. And I hope that that's the same throughout the world of basketball. Well, I worry that, um, you know, looking at how, you know, the economic impact um, is throughout the world, that that's not going to be the case. But um, let's hope for uh, and be positive. Well, let's hope you get back back to Blighty soon, back reunited with your family and another job in the bag before you leave Japan, ideally, but um, continued success, Tony, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this time around. Thanks, Mark. Always a pleasure, and um, you know you know that uh, you, you'll be the biggest advocate for, for British basketball, one of the, the, the obviously the, the, the biggest and most respected journalists, so um, we continue to, to appreciate everything that you do for the game and uh, I want to say that thank you personally. Well that's very kind of you Tony thank you very much and all the very best. That is it for this edition of the MVP cast brought to you by Total Environmental Compliance. Check them out on Twitter at T Compliance Limited and if you want to stream all our episodes you can head to our podcast page at mvp247.com or get us direct to your mobile device via your preferred podcast provider just search for MVP cast and if you've got a couple of seconds to leave us a review please do so preferably of course a nice one now of course if you'd like 
to help back the MVP cast and the website. Just head to mvp247.com for full details there. Now, our next edition coming very, very soon. But thanks for tuning in this time. From me, Mark Woods, it's goodbye. Goodbye.